We'll pick it up in verse 3, though we're going to be concentrating on verses 9 to 14 today. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world, in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that your word may be a light to our path and a lamp to our way, that you would shed light on your word and shed your light into our hearts and minds. For Jesus' sake, amen. Do you want to know God's will for your life? Well, if the answer is yes, you have come to the right place on the right day. By the time you leave, you will know God's will for your life, if you don't already know it. Now, that's a big claim, you may say. Well, I trust that it will be delivered on this morning. The prayer is, at the beginning of this section of Paul's prayer, in verse 9, and he says that we've not ceased to pray this for you from the day we heard about your faith. It is to ask that you, those he's writing to, you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Filled with the knowledge of of God's will. <coughs> Why is Paul praying? Well, verse 9 begins in our translation with, and so. It's a bit weak. It's literally because. In fact, the same word is translated at the beginning of verse 5 with the word because. 
It's because of, literally on account of this. For this reason, the reasons namely in verses three to eight. Because of this, on account of this, from the day we heard about your faith and love and hope, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Paul is immensely grateful that the, the, the good news of God's grace, this truth, as it's called in end of verse 6, the grace of God in truth, has reached the Christians in Colossae. It's given them a solid hope for the future of a new world, guaranteed, which in turn has given them a new confidence, faith in Christ Jesus, and a new community of mutual devotion and care where they belong and where they give and receive love to and from all their fellow saints. So as we were thinking last time, Paul is so thankful that they've heard the true gospel message and through hearing it, have become true Christians. And because of this, he prays for them. That's the reason. What does he pray? Verse 9, we've seen it. He prays that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, of course, that's the big question, isn't it? What is God's will? How do you discover what God's will is? How do you define it? And we need to step back for a moment and remember that we live in a culture which is saturated with individualism. We were brought up that way. Our whole culture around us tells us to think just about you yourself and not other people. That's where you begin. So the autonomy of the individual is the water in which we swim. The latest expression I've heard to describe this kind of culture in which we live is expressive individualism that the whole purpose of our existence is that I, as an individual, am given freedom to express myself however I want to express myself, and no one has the right to tell me that I can't express myself how I want to express myself. No, I have the right to do it. That's the culture in which we live, and it's very powerful, and it's almost our default setting as to how we view everything in the world, our lives, our world, our futures. But here's the thing, that if we want to understand God's will for our lives, we have to begin by understanding God's will for our universe. We've got to zoom out and see the big picture before we zoom back in to our own lives. And we will only understand what God's will for the universe is when we understand who Jesus Christ is. Now, this prayer that begins in verse 9, We've not ceased to pray for you, asking, and then he goes to talk on about what he's asking. It doesn't finish at the end of verse 14 as I read it. Uh, and certainly in the original, th this is just another uh, clause in the prayer from verse 15. Who is literally the image of the invisible God? He's just talked about the kingdom of God's beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, that is the supreme of all creation? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and, look at the end of verse 16, and for him. Everything that exists in this universe was not only created by the Lord Jesus Christ, but for him. And as you and I stand or sit here this morning, 
We are creatures who've been created by God. We were knit together in our mother's womb, brought out safely, and here we are breathing. We're alive. Who created us ultimately? The Lord Jesus Christ. Why are we here? What is the purpose of our existence? It's for Him. Because everything was not only created by Him, but for Him. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, which is a very similar letter to the ch letter to the church in Colossae, he puts it like this in chapter 1, 9, and 10, as he describes the blessings that we've received in Christ. He said, God has blessed us, quotes, by making known the mystery of His will. What is God's will? According to His purpose, His will has a purpose. If He chooses to do something, it's for a reason. And here's the reason. His purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, God has a plan for the fullness of time. It's going to come at the end of history. And here it is, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. God's will is the supremacy of Christ. And God's purpose is to bring everything under the control of Christ. And the current phase of this great divine project is the spread of, spread of the message that Christ is the Savior as well as the Lord, so that we want to see more and more people bring their lives into line with the destination of the universe. Now, I don't know whether you're going to be watching the coronation next Saturday. I guess we've got a mixture of ardent royalists and rabid republicans. I've no idea. Don't raise your hand. Um, but it's very difficult. Whatever your political views and whatever your views about the monarchy are, it, it's very difficult to avoid the attractiveness of the spectacle, isn't it? I mean, it is, th this country is, well, I must finish that sentence carefully, John. Um, one of the things that this country still does well is these big occasions, isn't it? I mean, the Queen's funeral was magnificent, however you look at it. Um, and I suspect that this coming Saturday we're in for another amazing spectacle. And one of the things, that, as a non-military man, I know we've got some military people in the congregation, but as, as a non-military man, one of the things that always astonishes me is how these, these marching troops manage to keep in line, you know, especially when they're turning. I, how do they do it? Well, they practice, no doubt, and they've learned to do it, and it's, it's amazing. Um, and I'm sure they get into serious trouble if they're out of line when they're practicing their turns, because on the day it has to be absolutely right. Well, there's a sense in which that's just a little picture of what is happening with God and His world on the cosmic scale, that He's bringing everything into line so that it's all lining up, nothing is out of place. And we have to bring our lives as individuals in this great spectacle, as it were, we have to bring our lives into line with God's purpose. Because each of those soldiers or military people as they march, they have to think of themselves in relation to the others and keep in line. And so we have to think of ourselves in relation to Christ and keep 
in line. Because Christ is the one, as Colossians 2.10 puts it, who is head over all rule and authority. It's not an amazing phrase. He is the head of all rule and authority. There is no ruler, there is no authority that is not under him. And one day, that will be clear for all to see. And Paul wants his readers, Paul wants us to grasp that this is God's will for the universe. So, we can begin to understand God's will for our lives, to bring our lives in line with that purpose and that destiny. So, in a sense, the whole purpose of the letter could be summed up in the phrase or in the verse, chapter 2, verse 6, which is, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, the one who is over everything, all rule and authority, so walk in him. Walk in line with his authority over your life. Back to Paul's prayer in chapter 1. What is the purpose then of Paul's prayer for them? Verse 10a. He prays that they may be filled, verse 9, with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as, here's the purpose of the prayer, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, or it could be translated, fully desiring to please him. Now, I don't know if your head teacher at school has ever given, or if you can think back to your school days, if it's not too far back in your memory, um, gives a lecture about the kind of behavior expected of the pupils of fill in the name of the institution. I can remember one from my school days. There was misbehaving on the buses. I think our pupils were being goaded by, well, that's my story anyway, goaded by other schools, because we were the poshies. And um, anyway, I was on a bicycle, so it didn't apply to me, of course, but... Um, or maybe your boss at work sometimes delivers that kind of communication about the service that clients and customers need to get in order to deliver the values of the company. So this idea of walking in a manner worthy of, it's not a foreign concept, it's something we're quite familiar with. Is this way of operating, this way of living, worthy of our institution, our educational institution, our business environment, our, the NHS or whatever it is, the environment in which we work. Walking in a manner worthy. And if we've come to understand that Jesus is the supreme Lord of the universe and he is our Lord, then what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of him? And the answer is, as we read on through the prayer, that there are four things that mark the life transformed by a full understanding of God's will. So if we're filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, desiring to please him fully at all times, this is what it's going to look like. Number one, good works galore. Forgive my English. 10b, bearing fruit in every good 
work or every kind of good work. Now, what is fascinating amongst many fascinating things, but one of the most fascinating is that this very practical prayer or prayer about very practical things, all kinds of good works, follows a remark at the end of verse 9 about being filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, if we were having a conversation and I spoke to you and there was no particular context to what I was saying, and I, I said, I'm going to say two words and I want you to tell me what comes into your mind when I use those two words. And I use the two words, spiritual wisdom. I say, okay, now tell me, tell me what comes into your mind when I say spiritual wisdom. Now, don't all shout out at once, but I hope that something came into your mind and you thought, yeah, okay, uh, forget Colossians for a moment where we are in, in, in the book. Just try and think, what is spiritual wisdom? Now, I've no idea what came into your head. You know what came into your head. But it's true to say, isn't it, that the word spiritual is used quite a lot today. Um, so people may say to you, oh, I'm, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Or, or they, they're, they're a very spiritual person. And if you then say, what do you mean by the word spiritual? Well, I mean, everybody knows. You don't need to ask the question. And I'm the kind of person who says, well, I'm afraid I don't know. I haven't a clue what you're talking about. Tell me what you're talking about. Define your term, spiritual. What fascinates me is that in God's way of thinking, when he's inspiring Paul to write these words and giving him this prayer that the Christians in Colossae and people like us who follow the same Lord Jesus may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus, the first thing that he says is bearing fruit in every good work. But that's so mundane, that's so practical. Exactly. Because in God's way of thinking, in God's economy, the spiritual and the practical cannot be divorced. I mean, can there have been a more spiritual person than our Lord Jesus Christ? And yet, can there, not have been, can there have been a more practical person when it comes to dealing with people's needs, seeing a widow in distress, raising her son from the dead in the funeral procession, <clears throat> providing the wine that had run out in John 2 at the wedding feast, thoughtfulness about his own mother as he hung dying on the cross. John, treat her as your mother, will you, from now on? He was an immensely practical person, and yet he was the most spiritual person who's ever lived by definition. No one had more of the Spirit of God in him. He had the Spirit without measure. So in God's way of thinking, someone who is full of spiritual wisdom will prove it by practical work. Good works galore. Second, growth in the knowledge of God, verse 10c and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, it's very interesting because there are four... I was talking to someone recently who said they don't know what the word participle means, but if you know what the word participle means, there are four participles. 
in this section, of, in this prayer. And this is the second one, but it's got an and in front of it. And it seems that there's a connection in Paul's mind between bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God that, that isn't between the other, the other, the third and the fourth are being strengthened and giving thanks. We'll come to those in a moment. But the reason I mention it is it seems, it's, it's, it's a plausible suggestion that, that good works galore goes hand in hand with a growing knowledge of God, that these are connected. Maybe it's something like this, that if you're a Christian, as you think about how kind God has been to you, how gentle, how caring, how generous, does it not move you to treat others the same? We read over in chapter 3, verse 13, this phrase, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In other words, think about how the Lord has forgiven you, and then treat others in the same way when they wrong you. So your life, if it's transformed by an understanding, a full understanding of God's will, not only sprouts all sorts of kind and generous deeds, but you yourself, in so doing, gain a growing understanding of the gracious heart of God. I remember when God kindly gave me a wife and then children, and I experienced fatherhood for the first time. And I'd been praying for decades to God as my father, and now I was a father. And I remember learning so much about God's fatherhood from becoming a father, how I had to remain calm when the baby-stroke toddler was screaming, for example. And then I thought, well, how often God has picked me up in my life and held me after I'd just thrown all my toys out of the pram and just held me and said, I love you, until finally the screaming subsides and the sobs disappear. And as you hold this child in your arms thinking, would you just stop screaming? You think, oh, this is how God's had to treat me, isn't it? For decades. So this is what it's like to be a father. Well, you may not be a father, but you can join me in saying, well, I'm a serial sinner, and I keep having to ask God for forgiveness. And I'm so grateful he doesn't treat me as I deserve. And so I must make sure I don't think about what other people deserve and treat them accordingly. I must treat them not as they deserve, like God treats me, not as I deserve. Growth in the knowledge of God. And thirdly, grit. Grit with gladness, verse 11. Being strengthened, it's, an, it's another participle in the four participles. Uh, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. See, when you understand God's will for the universe and how your life fits with that purpose, you will persevere joyfully. 
Any electric vehicle drivers here? You don't need to raise your hand, but you know who you are. I found myself uh, a few weeks ago, I had stopped um, at a service station up the M1, and the only, well, the first sort of free parking space I came to was right beside the electric vehicle charging um, bays. So as I got out of my car, I suddenly got caught up in, in range anxiety. It was like a sort of mist that was over this area of the car park. And, and there was this, you know, uh, uh, how long have you, you got before your car is, this is someone who hadn't managed to get into the bay, uh, before you've charged your car, you know, because... Uh, uh, and then uh, th there was a couple whose car was being charged, and they were both uh, looking at the manual and looking at the dials and trying to work out how much longer is it before our car is actually charged sufficiently to get to where we need to get to. And I thought, ah, oh, yes, range anxiety. I'm so glad I'm a petrol head. Uh, <laughs> now, how is it that the Christian keeps going? Think of our talk earlier. It's not with a modest battery recharge or even a replacement. We are plugged in. We are plugged in to the mains of God's glorious might. To see that phrase in verse 11, according to his glorious might. There is no range anxiety in the Christian life. We're going to cover the distance. We're going to get to our destination without running out of power. Life can be pretty tough, and Christians are not exempt from the rough side of life, from life-changing injuries or terminal conditions or family tensions or breakdowns. But at such moments, the prayers of God's people, pray verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might for all endurance and patience. With joy, it is grit with gladness. It's not dour grim. And finally, if you're filled with the knowledge of the will of God, you will be full of gratitude, verses 12 to 14. Gratitude for forgiveness, gratitude for a future. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light who has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, the background to this little section is probably the grand redemption story of the Old Testament. Most nations have some grand stories in their history, things they, they always remember that come up in their education at primary level as well as secondary. Well, for the people of Israel, it, the big one was their liberation from slavery in Egypt, circa 1400 BC. And of course, in the first instance, only Jews were eligible for a share in the promised land. They had to be children of Abraham. But now in the new covenant, Perhaps that's what's significant in the word you in verse 12. Who's qualified you, you Gentiles, to share in the inheritance of the saints? 
So it's not just Jews. Gentiles as well, as well are included and qualified by God to share in the inheritance. If you read through those bits in places like Judges, as the, the land is, and Joshua, as the land is divided up, it's Joshua, isn't it? Um, it could be rather sort of, for us who don't know the geography, and uh, are not massively interested in someone else's history maybe, it can be a little tedious to read, but if it's your land, you know, your title deeds with your map of your property's land, well, that is of interest to you because that's your land. And God has given you in Christ a share in the inheritance. He's given you some land, as it were. Or to change the picture in verse 12 and 13, you've been brought out of darkness into glorious light. Oh, hasn't it been a wonderful weekend? Why has it been such a beautiful weekend? Well, finally, the sun has shone in this benighted island. I mean, isn't it great when the sun actually shines and it's light and it's bright and you don't have to wear a jumper or a jacket? What a difference a sunny day can make. Well, we have been transferred, if we're trusting in Christ, into the kingdom of light where we, as it were, never have to wear a jacket. It's always bright. The sun is shining, and it's warm on the backs. And we have redemption. I mean, that was the great word for what happened to bring the people out of slavery. They were bought out of slavery. And that buying out of slavery in Christ, in whom, verse 14, we have redemption. It's in the Son, the Lord Jesus, means the forgiveness of sins. And the longer you live and the more you sin, the more you realize how amazing it is that God is not going to hold your sins against you. All of them are forgiven. And it's achieved by Jesus Christ, God's Son. It's in Him we have redemption. Verse 20, we'll come on to it next week, talks of making peace by the blood of his cross. He's brought about reconciliation between God and us because he shed his blood on our behalf in our place. And what is so special about him? Come back next week. Meantime, the prayer is that you will go home today filled with the knowledge of God's will, understanding God's will and his purpose for the universe, to bring everything under Christ and his headship, understanding where your life fits in with that, living under Christ's headship and lordship. <clears throat> As you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. So that as God answers that prayer and fills you with the knowledge of his will, you will live a life worthy of the Lord who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of God's people. A life with good works galore, with growth in the knowledge of God, with grit that joyfully perseveres, and with gratitude for all God has done for you through Jesus our Lord, not least the forgiveness of our many sins. Let's pray.